Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5, the very beginning of your Bible, 5th chapter, and we're going to be looking at a chunk of Scripture today. So we want everybody to have a Bible to follow along. The guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll give one of those to you. Keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. If you need one, we want everybody to have one and own it. Genesis 5. One of the features of time is that as much as you might like, you cannot turn it back. The things you did and said yesterday cannot be undone. If those things did damage, that damage can be mitigated and minimized. It can even be forgiven. But it can't be reversed. We've all had the desire to just start over at times. Have you ever begun a project and you're well into it when you realize this was not the great idea I thought it was, but it's too late for a do-over? You had a brilliant topic for that term paper at school, but now that you're trying to write it, it's not so wonderful after all, but it's due tomorrow, so there's no turning back. Or perhaps you started a home project, you got the sink torn apart, let's say, with tools and parts strewn on the floor, and it seems like every part you remove takes you deeper and deeper, and the project becomes larger and larger. You might like to have that decision to start this thing back, but you're in too far now. You're past the point of no return. In my family, they've seen this debacle enough that my wife and my girls perform an intervention if they see me grab a tool. (laughs) They always know it's not going to end well. They talk me into getting someone who knows what they're doing over to the house to do the repair. Now, the truth is, this is calculated incompetence on my part. I've cultivated a reputation such that my family never asked me to do anything. (laughs) Some guys have honey-do lists. My wife has a honey-don't list. I've had occasion to visit a few third-world countries over the years. And one of the things that has struck me is the everyday chaos and lack of organization that you see. You drive down a road such as it is, and you see houses such as they are, and they're just thrown up almost literally anywhere, next to businesses, airports, You name it. I remember flying into Mumbai, India. And as we flew into the uh, the landing strip, I look out the window and there are just these these shanty houses all along the side, right next to the, the airport. Zoning is a foreign concept. In general, chaos reigns. And I remember thinking on more more than one occasion, it would be great for this country to just start over. If the government could just call a timeout for, say, five years to get it figured out. But, of course, time and life move on, and there's no do-over. But God can intervene in time to start over whenever he chooses. And he did so in the story of Noah. In our series in the opening chapters of the Bible that we've titled, Our Problems But God's Promises, We've seen that God created the world and gave humanity an orientation to that world. 
instructing them on his good purpose for them. But we rebelled with devastating consequences so that there was a disorientation that took place. Humanity that was originally designed to live forever in harmony with God and one another and nature will now die and be alienated from all three. God had said to the first man and woman, our representatives, in the day you disobey me, you will die. Now, we've seen that in the Bible, death is separation. Spiritual death is separation of the individual from God. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. And humanity died spiritually that very day as we were separated from God. And as a result, we all die physically as well. So chapter 5 of Genesis catalogs the sad result of sin. One person after another giving their obituary in just a, a few sentences and all of those obituaries ending with the phrase, and then he died. Verse 5 of chapter 5. Adam lived a total of 930 years and then he died. The first man that was made to live with God forever dies because of sin. Now, just as an aside, because I know some of you are thinking, 930 years? Really? Now, I explained this in the message that we had on that chapter way back in, on September 27th of last year. Most of you know we had taken a six-month break, so now we're picking it up again in the last few weeks. But I'll just remind you of a portion of what I said then. Why did they live so very long? Well, I said then that scientists say the longevity we see in the early history of humanity has to do with three things. They call it genetic limit, genetic bottleneck, and genetic drift. Dr. Carl Weiland says this about it. There is a programmed upper limit in our, on our age, which appears to be 120 or so. Our ancestors simply possessed genes for greater longevity, which caused this genetic limit to human ages to be set at a higher level in the past. But how were some of these longevity genes lost? Well, the human population went through a severe genetic bottleneck at the time of the flood. Only eight individuals, as we will see, survived. The phenomenon of genetic drift is well known to be able to account for random, selectively neutral changes in gene frequencies, including the loss of extinction of genes from a population, or which may be quite rapid. Also, loss of genes is far more likely in a small population, he says. So early in human history, people were able to live very long lives. But the key point in chapter 5 is that even with those long lives, with all of those years, they all ended the same way that our relatively short lives do. So in verse 8 of chapter 5, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. Verse 11, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. Verse 14, and then he died. Verse 17, and then he died. Verse 20, and then he died. Verse 27, and then he died. And finally, verse 31, and then he died. Death came because of sin. Rebellion against our Creator resulted in this now. Not only spiritual death, but physical death. Now, what is this sin? Well, we all know it's, it's breaking God's law, breaking God's command, 
But in breaking God's command, it breaks everything else as well. In fact, one author has written a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. That's the name of the book. And in it, Cornelius Plantinga defines sin this way. Culpable disturbance of shalom. What is that? Well, some of us know the word shalom, the Hebrew word shalom, and and we use it as for peace. And and it, it certainly means that. It includes that. But it's a much larger concept than just peace beyond you. Things go, I trust things go well with you. But rather, shalom is a, is a state of being where all things are in harmony with all other things. And God made the world in a state of then shalom, this harmony with God, with one another, and with our world. But sin has disturbed and distorted all of that. It's not just a breaking of God's command, but all of the consequences then that go with it. A disturbance of shalom, a disturbance of the peace. That's why I've titled this message, you see at the top of the outline that's in your program, if you don't have that out, restoring the peace. You see, the peace has been disturbed. Shalom has been broken. And God is now going to endeavor to bring it back. So death came because of sin. And as time went on, sin became more and more pronounced so that in chapter 6 and verse 5, if you'll just turn over to chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. God purposes to destroy all living things, including animals and birds and creatures that move along the ground due to sin and its consequences on all of life. Why the animals? Why the birds? That's part of the breaking of shalom. Sin has broken everything. But verse 8 gives a note of hope. In the midst of God's determination to destroy all that he has made. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's ask God to help us as we begin to look at God's do-over for his world. Father, we thank you for this sacred hour. We thank you for this time to gather as your people, to quiet our hearts, to focus our minds upon your truth. Lord, all week we have been bombarded with false messages, some of them even imperceptible. Some of them that we hear all the time and they become part of us. And so, Lord, we need to come apart and we need to focus our attention upon your word, your truth. And so, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to do that. We pray as a result of this injection of your truth and the falsehood that's around us. That we might go from this place better equipped to live in a way that's consistent with the, the purpose for which you created us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I have three major points, four major points in your outline. But I'm going to spend a good, decent bit of time on the first of these, but I expect to get to the others as well. The first is this. God makes believers righteous. 
God makes believers righteous. Verse 8 of Genesis 6, in the midst of God's determination to, to destroy all life because of the pervasiveness of sin, in the midst of that, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then verse 9 goes on to say this. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Noah stands out among all the people in the world at that time. Now just think about that. Uh, Estimates have said that there were, unlike the six billion people we have in the world today, there might have been 10 million people at that time. But nevertheless, if you're the one in 10 million, this is quite, uh, quite high praise. That Noah is the only one who is going to be spared, along with seven others. And it says here that he was righteous, blameless, and faithful. Now, you get the idea that this guy is the perfect man, but there is no such thing as the perfect man other than Jesus. So I want us to understand that when it says these things about Noah, notice this first point. God makes believers righteous. It's not that Noah was inherently righteous. It's not that Noah was inherently good. In fact, the Bible tells us very clearly all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes Noah. And he's called righteous here not because he made himself righteous. The Bible in that same chapter, Romans chapter 3, tells us there is no one righteous, not even one. Instead, it's because God showed his grace to Noah. His unearned and undeserved grace in Noah's life. Verse 8 again says, but Noah found favor. And the word favor there is the word for grace. In fact, it's sometimes translated, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So God did not, contrary to what we often think, God did not look at a world that was steeped in sin and he looked around going, I'm hoping there's one person who's walking a straight line. And God looks all around and he goes, Noah, wow, that was close. There was almost nobody. And out of all these people, I found Noah. No, look, notice, Noah found grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And it was grace, as grace always is, that comes from God. This is the same thing that we're going to see in a few weeks as we continue the story in the life of Abraham. You know, you look at the story of Abraham, and as we're going to see, God calls Abraham out of a town called Ur in modern-day Iraq. And what was it about Abraham that caused God to focus his attention on Abraham? And the answer is nothing but God's grace. Same same thing that caused God to focus on, on Noah. In fact, did you know that Abraham was an idol worshiper? And God called him out of that idol worship. Joshua 24 says this, Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, worshipped other gods. And yet God determined, I'm going to use this man. Not because of anything great about Abraham, but because of God's determination to do his work through him. 
So that when we get to Genesis 12, we're going to see in verse 1 this. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And here's what I'm going to do. I will make you into a great nation. I will make your name great. And I will bless those who bless you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so here in Genesis chapter 6, we have only one man left in the godly line that God is seeking to preserve. You would have thought that over time, there would be more and more believers. But in fact, as time goes on, the number of genuine believers decreases. Did you know that? Over time, the number of genuine believers decreases. And and I will just say that as living for Christ as a genuine Christian in the future in America becomes harder, you will see the sheep and the goats separated. Right now, many are in the same place, many in the same churches, but you will see them separated. Over time, the number of genuine believers decreases. By the time of Abraham, the world had thrown off most of what it knew about God. And Jesus says this, when Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, he said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus says, when I return, will there be anyone who is a believer? Now, there are always some genuine believers in the world, but it's because God intervenes and transforms them, not because of any inherent goodness in the individual. And so, friends, as we look at this calamity that came upon the world because of sin, and Noah and seven others are rescued, you and I should ask ourselves, what makes us different? What makes you different from those around you who are outside of Christ now? Well, you know what makes you different? If you are different, it's because God has set his grace upon you. This is hard for some of us to get our minds around, but it's absolutely true. And I just preach truth here from God's word. So I just tell you what God says, put it together the best I can, choose to believe it or not. But when the great apostle was was preaching to Gentiles, moved the gospel had moved from Jews only to now a Gentile population. The Bible tells us that when Paul and Barnabas preached to Gentile people, that God moved on the hearts of some of them to rescue them, to deliver them, to save them. And this is what Acts 13, 48 says. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. You see that last phrase? Who believed? Those who are appointed for eternal life. You know what makes you different? Because God determined to call you out and use you. God's grace is what makes you different. Not because you're smart. Not because you know a good deal when you see one. Not because you chose when others rejected. You indeed did chose, but choose. But you chose because God chose you first. 
The work of God always precedes the response of man. The work of God always precedes the response of man. And so here is Noah, and Noah finds grace, finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I just, you can tell I'm taking pains to make sure you understand that Noah was not saved because of Noah. Noah was saved because of God. And you're not saved because of you. You're saved because of our Lord God. Sin and death, friends, are the norm. Righteousness and life are the exception. But that there are exceptions at all is a testimony to God's grace because if God strictly executed justice on his world, everyone would be destroyed, including us. If you have spiritual life from God, then you are exceptional because of his grace. And God says further in chapter 6, if you look at verse 17, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath, the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. Now, I'd like to spend just a little bit of time considering why things were so bad at this time that God purposed to destroy the entire world. Because we look at that and, you know, a universal flood, a global flood event is a one-time thing. It's only happened once. And so you look at it and you say, man, they must have been really bad. I'm glad we're not as bad as that. You think to yourself, you know, the evangelists out there must have just had a bad run. (laughs) With just nobody responding. Well, what caused Noah to respond? Well, it was God's grace and that alone. And if God had not selected these eight, how many would have been saved? You know what the answer is biblically? Zero. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one, the Bible says. So this time period was worse than ours, but hear this, not because we are better, but we're better off. Not because we're better, but only because we're better off. And we're better off only due to God's common grace in our society in this day. Chapter 6 and verse 5 says, Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now, I want you to hear this. Because we look at that and we go, Well, that was just a particularly wicked period. Yes, it did result in violence the passage goes on to say as god's common grace was was lifted so that the restraints upon sin were removed and now the thoughts and inclinations of the heart could be carried out but hear this those thoughts and inclinations are the same thoughts and inclinations of the unregenerate heart today and if it were not for god's restraining common grace then it would be like that Today, I mentioned Cornelius Plantinga in his book on sin. Here's what he says. He mentions something called involuntary sins. You know, thoughts and notice chapter 6 and verse 5 says inclinations of the heart. That's just what we're disposed to do. And so these are imperceptible even. It's just our nature. And so he says involuntary sins are surprisingly common. For example, the traditional seven deadly sins. 
that the Bible mentions of pride, envy, anger, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust are usually involuntary. They are desires, beliefs, and attitudes over which a person may have little or at best only variable control. Faithful warriors against these sins thus experience familiar failures, slight improvements, backslidings, painful conquests, pyrrhic victories, broken treaties, and humiliating compromises. The scriptures claim that human beings need powerful outside intervention to control and eventually conquer their faults. But all veterans of the sin wars know this is know this by personal experience as well as what God's word says. Where the deadly sins are concerned, a person may not want these states of mind. Nobody wants to be envious. Think about that. Nobody wants to be envious. Why? Because I want people to be envious of me. Nobody wants to be envious, and they may not choose them. They may not mean or try to have them. In fact, just the contrary. And yet, they are there. And God allowed that to go on unfettered without the restraints of his common grace so that violence became the norm in that world. And I am telling you that if God did that in our day, it would be just the same. We tend to compare sins. Because since some are worse than others, because some have worse effects than others, and are deeper forms of depravity than others, then if we don't commit those, we're better than those others who do, right? Again, one more quote from Plantinga. He says, all sin is equally wrong, but not all sin is equally bad. Acts are either right or wrong, either consonant with God's will or not, but among good acts, some are better than others, and among wrong acts, some worse than others. Christians believe that thinking deliciously about adultery is just as wrong as committing it and not a different offense in kind. But Christians also know that adultery in one's heart damages others less, at least for the short term, than does adultery in a motel room and may therefore rank as less serious on the badness spectrum. But God knows the thoughts and inclinations of the heart. Friends, we are... Better in our behavior because of the restraints of God's common grace. But we are not better inherently, innately than those whom God destroyed. God makes believers righteous. And I say in your outline, God instructs the righteous. It's God who in his grace makes believers righteous and it's God who instructs the righteous. Verses 13 to 22, God instructed Noah on what to do. Chapter 6 and verse 13. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. 
Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And verse 22 says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Now, next week, we're going to look at the details of that. This boat that Noah built. The dimensions the materials, and the actual event of the flood uh, itself. But none of those is the central teaching of these chapters. Instead, it's focused on the tendencies of humanity away from God and the character of God seen in his grace in the lives of the righteous and his judgment on the unrepentant. And I say in this second point here that God instructs the righteous. He gave instructions to Noah. He told Noah what to do. As opposed to everybody else. You see, even if there were only 10 million people alive at that time, only a relative handful received instruction from God. Have you ever thought about that? Well, how is that fair? God goes and destroys the whole world. And he's just got this one guy that he says, I'm going to give you an escape hatch and here's how you're going to do it. And he gives him and him alone those instructions. Not everyone heard. The vast majority of people did not hear. Noah and his family did, obviously. And anyone that Noah told. And I assume that over the about 70 years, we'll see that next, we'll see that next week, that Noah is building this ark, that Noah did preach. In fact, the Bible tells us in the New Testament... God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Notice he's called a preacher of righteousness. So Noah preached in some way, either by his life or by his mouth or both. So that there were some who who knew, and obviously they rejected. But the vast majority did not know. And the vast majority in our day do not know. Did you all know that? There are, there are millions and millions of people who know nothing about Jesus and about the gospel. So what happens with them? Well, friends, let me remind you of something we teach in our core classes in our community institute. Master Plan for Life is our theology class for regular people. We'll be doing it again in the fall. If you haven't taken it, I encourage you to do that. And in it, we distinguish, as the Bible does, between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is God making known general information about himself to a general audience. That's everybody. That he exists and that he is powerful and he's the one who made you. And every person is responsible to seek this God who made them. But Romans chapter 1 tells us that every person in their natural state, rejects general revelation. Every person in their natural state rejects what they know about God. God is therefore not under any obligation to give them more information about himself. What would they do with more information? The same thing they do with the information they have. Reject, suppress it, hold it down. Therefore, Romans 1 says, they are without excuse. So special revelation is just that. It's special. 
It's specific information given to specific people. And you are among those people. You have heard the truth. You have been instructed by God. And friends, that's a privilege beyond measure. That you have in front of you the word of the living and true God. And God was under no obligation to give it to me or to give it to you. And he gives that word initially in the good news of the gospel. But then in his word, he gives us ongoing direction for our lives. And so the psalmist says famously in Psalm 119, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So as we look at this episode today and next week, and you look at those people who perished, all throughout you should be saying to yourself, that could have been and should have been me. God makes believers righteous. God instructs the righteous. And thirdly, I say in your outline, God delivers the righteous. God delivers the righteous. Chapter 7. And verse 1. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. And then verse 5. As we already saw in chapter 6 and verse 22, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. So Noah does this and the seven others go into the ark and they are spared. They are delivered. They are rescued. They are saved. When we use the terminology then in Christianese, hey, when did you get saved? Or we ask, have you been saved? Are you saved? Do you know what we're asking when we say that? We're asking, have you been rescued? Have you been delivered? Now, what are you being delivered and rescued from? You're being delivered and rescued from the penalty that is justly due you and me for our sin. You've been rescued, delivered, saved from that. You're rescued and delivered, the Bible tells us as well, from the power of that sin, not just the penalty. And it will be in the future that one day God is going to remove all vestiges of the presence of sin as well. But in the meantime, you are saved from the penalty and the power of sin. But you're also saved, rescued, delivered from something else. You're delivered from the wrath of God against sin. Rescued from the anger of God against sin. Romans chapter 2 and verse 5. Romans 2 and verse 5 says, You are storing up wrath for yourselves against the day of God's wrath. Every breath that an unbeliever takes, they're stealing the oxygen that God made for them to praise him. And storing up wrath. And everyone desperately needs to be delivered, rescued, saved. And God, it's God who delivers some, delivers the righteous. He did that with Noah and seven others. And if you know Jesus, then you have been delivered, rescued, saved from the penalty and the power of sin And then he is going to bring destruction upon the earth once again. Do you all know that? 
And so here's what the Bible says, 1 Thessalonians 5, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly and they will not escape. They will not be rescued. They will not be delivered. It goes on to say, but you, brothers and sisters, God did not appoint to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. But you are different. But why are you different? <laughs> if you go and look at chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, it's because God has, God has chosen you, not because of anything within you. Same thing as with Noah. Same thing as with Abraham. Same thing as it's always. So God makes believers righteous, instructs the righteous. He rescues, saves, delivers the righteous. And then lastly in your outline, God destroys the unrighteous. God destroys the unrighteous. Verse 11 of chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, some of you have heard this story and told this story many times over the years. Maybe you've taught it in Sunday school. And I'm just going to guess that 90% of us have added some details that ain't there. Now, here's, here's one of them. That it had never rained before. Actually, the account does not say that. It does not say that it had never rained before. So Bill Cosby, have you ever seen Bill Cosby's Noah routine? And God's talking to him, and he says, what's rain? I've never heard of rain. Now, that comes from nothing in the account of Noah. It goes back to chapter 2 and verse 5 of Genesis, where it says, No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth. That's in chapter 2 and verse 5. But that simply means it had not rained to that point in creation week. So it doesn't mean there had been no rain, but now it's going to rain consistently for 40 days and 40 nights. And in addition to that, the waters from the depths are going to rise up as as well. So verse 17 says in chapter 7, For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Don't you just love the story of Noah and the flood? And all of this mass destruction? Sometimes we don't read our Bibles closely enough, do we? Yesterday, during that beautiful day yesterday, I took a walk at Luna Pier. 
And as I walked along thinking about what I'd be preaching today, I looked at Lake Erie. And I, and I just thought about the horror of what this passage describes. Now, I'm going to show a clip. It's a one-minute clip. It's from a comedian. So, um, this is something extremely sober and serious. And he's going to make a very serious point in this one-minute clip. So if you guys will play that. Come on, man. There's some beautiful stuff in the Bible. There's some stuff in there you got to admit. It's not what we can call family-friendly. <laughs> Think about it. There's a reason you don't see some of those illustrations in the Precious Moments Bible. You don't see Cain and Abel in the Precious Moments. The in that Precious so I got never understand parents who will paint Noah's Ark on their kids, little kids' bedroom walls. It doesn't make sense. Noah's Ark's a great story, but it's just out there, man. It's like, Daddy, what are you doing? I'm painting Noah's Ark on your wall, sweetheart. My favorite story. You know where God sends a worldwide flood to kill every living thing? Yeah. I love it. It's awesome. Hey, get, grab a brush and paint some screaming people on that rock for me just to make it real. It's going to be great. Look in the baby's room. I painted the stoning of Stephen. You're going to love that. You know, on the one hand, it's funny. On the other hand, it's not, right? Because that's the way we look at it. We, we forget that God's righteous judgment and his wrath abides upon all living creatures outside of Jesus. And Jesus said this. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Do you all know something like that is coming in the future? That's why Peter wrote, Second Peter. Scoffers will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that by God's word, the world was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. How do you escape? How are you rescued? How are you delivered? Where is the ark? The writer of Hebrews asks this question in Hebrews chapter 2. How shall we escape? If we ignore so great a salvation. To every person here. You've got to get in the ark as it were. And you've got one means to be rescued. One. 
And it's the great deliverance, the great rescue, the great salvation that comes through Jesus. And you've got breath right now to do it. We're going to bow in just a bit. And we're going to give you opportunity to do that. But dear friend, please understand, there will be a reckoning for all flesh. And just as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. And God in his grace is giving time. God gave time for those others to come into the ark, but he knew none would. He's giving you time in his grace. Because that passage in Second Peter chapter 3 goes on to say this. God is not willing, God is not desirous that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he offers that, he offers that to you now. We will see that in just a moment. And give you opportunity to enter the refuge that is Jesus. And what about those of us who have entered the ark that is Christ? The only rescue. What does this mean for us? Friends, it's sobering, isn't it? It's humbling. Hey, I'm not saved because of anything in me. It's all because of the grace of God. And it also should be motivating, should it not? How many friends and family and neighbors and co-workers do you have that are moving toward this destruction? That need the good news message that Jesus is our refuge. Motivation for us to give the gospel while it is still day and while there is still time. So your take home truth is this. It is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace you have been rescued and delivered. And you notice that's in quotation marks. That's a quote from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5 in your Bible. Now with that, friends, we're going to bow. And as we do, those of us that have entered the ark, let us thank God for his mercy and his grace in our lives. Let's ask God to forgive us for our lack of motivation to give the good news to those who are perishing. And then those who have never come to Jesus, he gives you this chance. If you reject this opportunity, you reject an opportunity that God did not owe you at all. Do you understand that? God did not owe you this opportunity. In his grace, he has given it to you. And he does not owe you another opportunity this afternoon, tomorrow, or next week. So please, I beg you. Come into the safety of the ark that is Jesus. Who died in order for your relationship with God to be restored. Realize that you needed that because you're a sinner. Recognize that Christ died to pay the penalty for your sin. Repent. I'm going to follow you, God, and not my own rebellion. And then receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray. You say from your heart to God those things. He that calls on the name of the Lord will be rescued, delivered, saved. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are stilled and sobered as we think about the reality of the consequences of sin. You've shown us that in your word. You have intervened in your world in order to cut back sin, to remove it. You're going to do it again in the future. 
And if we're here at the time of your of your coming, those that are that are left behind will see that destruction. And if in the meantime they die a natural death, they will stand before you and have to give an account. And they will suffer destruction one way or the other. And it's because you hate sin and you hate sin because you are naturally constituted. Your character is such that you cannot, you cannot, not just that you will not, you cannot abide sin. And so it must be destroyed if you are the holy God that we sang about earlier. We thank you, Lord, that in Jesus your anger was poured out on him. So it need not be poured out on us. Thank you that your wrath was satisfied in God the Son having become man on the cross. Oh, Lord God, we thank you profoundly then that because of him we've been delivered, saved, rescued. And Lord, we ask you to bring others to the foot of the cross in this sacred moment. We ask you to move upon their hearts such that they see that they are liable to the same punishment as were all of us. But you offer the safety of Jesus. Lord, we will praise you that you have rescued yet another from death and brought them into life. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.